welcome back for the second time this year to Wes and conversations about the films of Wes Anderson, a proud member of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. This episode, I suppose, is titled The Wonderful Story of Henry Podcast (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Will, and that's your other host, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will. How are you doing? I'm doing A-OK. And yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I um, was telling you off mic, I have a little bit of an eye twitch, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, But otherwise, yeah, getting into the holiday spirit. Indeed. Thanksgiving is just around the corner. We did some Christmas decorating today, which I normally hold off on until after Mm. Thanksgiving, but... um, we are not getting a Christmas tree this year, so. Okay. Normally, we get a live, well, it's dead because it's been cut, but it's a real Christmas tree. I feel very strongly that real Christmas trees are are better in most instances, not with holding, of course, things like allergies. Um, we're mm-hmm. not getting one because we have, as you know, a new cat. And mm-hmm. it would, we just, it was actually Elliot who said this to us. Did I tell you this? Uh, no, go on. I was sitting on the couch with Elliot like two months ago. And Mm. she says to me, Mama, I don't think we can get a Christmas tree this year. Mm. And I said, what? Why? And she was like, Gato will just wreck everything. He'll spend the whole time wrecking the Christmas tree. And I went, Mm. oh my God, you're right. Like, (laughs) and, and, you know, we'll deal with this in other years, but he's still, he's not even a year old yet. He's like eight months old now. So... Liz has caught me smiling and chuckling to myself because since you brought this up, I keep thinking of a TikTok video that I saw. And I don't go on TikTok and I don't see stuff unless it gets into my other feeds. Or Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I suppose maybe you haven't seen this or else you would already know what I'm going to say. It's this video where... <laughs> Like if you if you just heard the audio, you would hear the TikTok lady voice. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Saying saying like you know the the tip or the trick that the video is trying to teach you is traumatize your cat with your Christmas tree so they will leave it alone. <laughs> and then the person filming it in their other hand has their Christmas tree like from the trunk. It's uh-huh. like just small enough that they can like carry it in one hand and they're just <laughs> waving it at the cat <laughs> like as if they're trying to like st- stab the cat in the tree. <laughs> and it's probably really cruel to the cat much like other TikTok cat videos we've talked about on the mm-hmm. podcast but um, it's so so funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I hadn't considered that we could just traumatize him from an early age. Yes, you could get a tree. (laughs) Supposing that this uh, works and doesn't just make the cat more likely to attack the tree because it sees the tree. (laughs) Yeah, more likely to want to attack the tree. Right. But maybe if it sees the tree as a threat to it, it will it will leave it alone. Hard, hard to hard to know. Fight or flight. (laughs) Who can say? Who wants to put money on it? Yeah, not mm. me this year anyway. No. Um, so yes, because of that, we are, I I sort of, we cleaned a lot and we put out some decorations and that's also fine because we're going to be in Harrisburg for Thanksgiving and the weekend. Mm. So normally we would do a lot of our decorating that weekend, but we won't be home. So right. 
So you got to jump on it and you waited until after Veterans Day. Yes. So good on you for not doing it on November 1st. Like some Yeah. People. Yeah, it's like Halloween's over. <laughs> With that, uh, should we get into old business? Yes. Old business. I forgot to ask you something before we started recording. What? Do you have the bag handy? I do. Okay, terrific. Do you want to start there or do you have uh, something else you want to start with? I have some old, some new old business. Oh, good. That's which I'm only time. telling you because this is one of the other, this has happened other times where someone has died and I found out while we were recording. Oh, cool. <laughs> Rosalind Carter died. Oh, no. Do you know who that is? <laughs> yes. Tell our listeners, though. <laughs> Uh, Jimmy Carter's wife, first lady of the, former first lady of the United States. She was 96 and had dementia. So really quite old business if we're talking about it. She was 96. Um, Mm. I mean, bets are on about whether or not Jimmy dies in the next month or not, you know? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, which, which I say not in a mean way, just that like when you're very, very old and your partner dies, it's like a high percentage of people that they, that are just like, see ya, Mm -hmm. not worth this shit anymore. Bye guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. I'm familiar with that as a phenomenon. Presidents are not. So, so I I have a, I, I, as if you, as you know, if you've listened to last month's episode of the Smug Buds, I have a bag full of old business. Uh Uh-huh. And why don't we uh, knock out one of them now, if you would do me the courtesy of reading whatever slip of paper you've pulled out of my grab bag. Okay, are you ready? Yes, I am. This says Watt, W-A-T, Watt makes, this is also all in small caps. Okay. Uh, Watt makes Paul F. Tompkins your fave. Oh, that's a fun one. Why is he funny? Cool, smart, hot. <laughs> wow, that went on way longer than I expected it to. <laughs> uh, you can also speak to this. Paul F. Tompkins is one of your favorites as well. He is, yeah. Isn't that true? Um, so one of the one of the early podcasts that I got into, and the one that has sort of stuck around the longest. Uh, not only existing, but me paying attention to it mm-hmm. is Comedy Bang Bang. Yes, of course. And I, look, it's hard to remember your first exposure to things when when you're first exposed, you're lacking some context. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the first time I heard Paul F. Tompkins, I didn't know who he was. And so I don't remember that occurrence yeah the first thing i do remember is hearing him play cake boss on uh (laughs) so back in the day it was a very common phenomenon for paul Tompkins to guest on comedy bang bang and play a character and at that time most of his characters were impressions of existing people Mm -hmm. like the cake boss And Werner Herzog uh, (laughs) being sort of the two funniest and most popular, probably. Mm -hmm. And there are a variety of others. Um, Some we won't mention because they're 
best left in the past. Yeah. And then over the years of Comedy Bang Bang, Paul F. Tompkins has gradually sort of phased out those impressions and never stopped coming on the show, comes on with greater frequency than anyone else. Mm-hmm. But rather than doing impressions of real people, creating original characters. Yeah. With funny voices. What When I was dungeon mastering a D&D campaign for my friends for a few years, I, you know, most of my approach to dungeon mastering was coming up with what I thought was a funny idea for an NPC that they could encounter, mm-hmm. you know, giving them sort of a game, mm-hmm. a, char- a character game, if you will, in, in comedy parlance and, uh, and doing, and doing a voice. And I would, I would come up with the idea. I would do the voice and then it would be only afterwards that it would be like, Oh, Right. That I just I'm doing an impression of a Paul Tompkins character. I, <laughs> like I would realize in hindsight, oh, that was me imitating uh his his Werner Herzog or, mm-hmm. or something like that. But um yeah, um you know, hard to hard to put your finger on sometimes what what makes uh a person especially funny or their own unique brand of funny. Do you have any thoughts on any specifics of why you're a fan of his? Yeah, I do. I actually have like a really specific answer to this question. I I can't tell you the first time I ever encountered Paul F. Tompkins, but I can uh-huh. tell you the first time I became aware of him, okay. which was, um, it's funny for the King of Podcasts um, that this was where I heard him, but it was on the Janet, it was on the JV Club, the Janet uh-huh. Barney podcast yeah. and her Boys of Summer series where she interviewed yep. boys. Right. And it was his, it was that. And then from there, I think I started listening to Spontanea Nation mm-hmm. because she was on Spontanea, at the time, she was, she would be on Spontanea Nation a lot. And I still, to this day, miss Spontanea Nation. Sure. That was one of my favorite long form improv podcasts. Mm-hmm. And through that podcast, part of the reason I found Paul F. Tompkins so funny is that he isn't mean. He's mm-hmm. kind. And that's not to say he doesn't swear or he doesn't poke fun at things or he doesn't, um, you know, it's not crass or something like that. Um, but I never felt feel unsafe around him. Mm-hmm. I never feel like he's going to say something that's going to make me feel bad. Right. And so even when he had people on that maybe were like veering, and I'm not saying that his comedy has like always been this way. I think that he's the kind of guy that like, has learned to grow and change as he's learning new information, which is also part of the reason why I love him so much. Right. Um, But I think that, like, even, like, when he had other people on his podcast that would, like, maybe sort of be going in a direction that was, like, not great, he would steer them back, and Mm -hmm. he would do it with such efficiency and with such kindness. Even the way that he, you know, dealt with hecklers at the one show, the one Spontaneous Nation show we saw together in L.A., Mm -hmm. Um, was like with firmness and and efficiency and kindness. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I really love comedy and I love jokes and I love wordplay. Um, but so like 90% of comedy is just like makes me want to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like, it's just like, 
uh, not fair or it feels not safe or it feels like I have to think too much about it. Like, is this actually funny or is mm-hmm. it like what's happening? And with Paul of Tompkins, um, I never have to do that. And yeah, that's why. That's, yeah, that's right. You're hitting on something which is very uh, insightful and true. And it is, he he doesn't do clean comedy. Yeah. And his comedy isn't particularly wholesome, but there's a sort, there's a wholesomeness that you can count on in what it, what he won't do and where it won't go. Yeah. He will almost never be guilty of punching down. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and if he has anything negative to say, it's, it's either harmless or it's directed at, you know, some party that is like clearly like bad or evil is, is deserving of the, of the criticism, um, or the, or the mockery. Yeah. Uh, as it were, how does that translate to going on Scott Ackerman's podcast and doing a funny cake boss voice. <laughs> I, I, ha- I have no idea, but, but part of what is so funny is that the cake boss character is so many people's favorites because he immediately takes it to these really absurd places mm-hmm. where the joke isn't haha, this guy, it has a funny voice and a dumb TV show. That's, in there but mainly the focus is they weave these really weird stories about he how he can see the future and how (laughs) he can communicate with dead celebrities and it's all just like what if this really bizarre thing was true of this guy you know from reality tv yeah um and and I just okay. I had one more thought that I wanted to share, and then we can move on to something else. Which is mm-hmm. that I have long thought that Paul F. Tompkins has a sort of cousin in comedy that it is important how similar they are, but also more important how they differ. Mm-hmm. And the, and I'm talking about John Hodgman. Yes, and they're buddies too, which is so cute. Paul Tompkins and John Hodgman are the like gentleman comedians, uh-huh. right? Uh, and there's there's a reason why I I like them both, but Paul Tompkins is one of my all time favorites, and John Hodgman is just like very funny to hear from. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've never once listened to John Hodgman's own podcast. I'm just happy if John Hodgman. Shows up on a, as a guest on Doughboys or something, and I'm my or, favorite or, is when or blank I shirt. get to talk them, see them talking to each other. Sure, yeah, and the couple of times I've seen well. that. But as 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 similar as I think they are in the way that they style themselves, and even just their speech patterns, I think yeah. if you listen to them, their delivery sounds very similar. Um, but there's a there's a kind of Paul F. Tompkins clearly likes being this way and is clearly just trying to like be the best version of himself mm-hmm. with his like suits and his 
speech pattern, his, his, you know, his diction. And John Hodgman might be doing the same thing, but there's clearly, there's clearly a John Hodgman character. Yeah, yeah. And that starts with like the Daily Show, right? Like mm-hmm. John Hodgman would do these segments on the Daily Show where he's, cor- you know, correspondent John Hodgman. And he's, he's playing like, the, you know, the, the, the millionaire who's mm-hmm. like really evil and he has a big smile on his face and he's very polite. And it's like, okay, that's in all of what John Hodgman does. Whereas I feel like uh, Paul Tompkins is just authentically being. Yes. Like when he started wearing um, t-shirts during the pandemic, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen, and not that I'm seeing him every day, but like, I was just legitimately like, I didn't know you owned t-shirts. Like the only Uh, other time I had ever seen him in a t-shirt was occasionally if he posted something like as he was going to bed and he was Mm -hmm. wearing like a white t-shirt. Right. (laughs) I have two more tiny things to say about Paul F. Tompkins. The first of which is that he's from Philadelphia. So I have a big soft spot for him because of that. Um, He also, so he'll say Lancaster correctly, for example. Uh And like every time I hear him say it correctly, it's like fireworks. Mm -hmm. Um, he also went to Bishop McDevitt High School, um, which there's two Bishop McDevitt high schools in the entire country. There's two high, Catholic high schools named after Bishop McDevitt. The mm. other one is in Harrisburg. Oh, wow. Um, and then the other thing is I really fucking love Janie. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened. I haven't listened to it as much anymore, but during the beginning of the pandemic, I listened to a lot of Stay F. Homekins. Mm-hmm. Um, I would listen to it when I would go for walks and... Um, she's just like Southern and so sweet. And Paul just like clearly is so like wildly in love with her. Um, it makes me that that makes me like very happy to hear them interact. <laughs> no. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I second that as well. Um, any other, uh, items on, uh, uh, of old business? I was trying to think about this and I don't think I have anything else. So I, I was going to bring something up that I thought you might bring up too. Um, which is that Boy Genius did SNL? Oh yes, and did I, I tell you I got to see it live? Oh uh, yes, you were you were celebrating New Year's. Right? I was celebrating over, New Year's over Veterans Day weekend. Um, I was. Uh, I think they did great. I think that they mm-hmm. SNL is um sort of famously bad at mixing their musical guests, which is oh. hilarious considering it is something that happens every week, For twice over forty years. <laughs> Um, but there's been more than once that even I, someone who is not a music uh, producer, is like... Someone who is a, a lay person. Yeah, like, why is this coming through this way? They were mixed really, really well. I thought they chose two really good songs to play. Um, they played um, Strong Enough, obviously, as their first song, because that's sort of their single. But then they did Satanist second, right. which mm-hmm. is another one that sort of equally showcases everybody. And... Um, I just thought I just thought they knocked it out of the park. I was really, really. I mean, obviously, I'm huge fans of them, but <laughs> I was really pleased with their um, uh, their performance, and it was very special. Um, so often, when I want to do things like, you know, I want to watch a thing or here's a thing I like, I'm just sort of like by myself doing it. Um, and after we sliced the top off of a bottle of champagne. Uh, we came inside and I said, you know, ah, this band I love is going to be playing on SNL. I, you know, I, you guys don't have to sit with me. And everybody sat with me. And nice. I, 
like kind of wanted to cry. I was just like, I can't believe everybody's just like hanging out with me here. Um, and we all watched it and it was, yeah, it was really joyful. I was really happy. Yeah, I thought they did a great job. And uh, coincidentally, the weekend that it happened, I was uh, visiting a family member staying at their place, uh, which are the exact circumstances in which one uh, watches things on television that one would not normally watch. Late at night, specifically. Um, we watched it ne- the next day. We didn't watch oh, okay. it uh, live. But uh, yeah, something that I would not uh, think of doing. Uh, I uh, it was it was the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's and, good. Uh, and I enjoyed seeing it. And then um, I'm going to float a topic, and you tell me if you want to talk about it or save it for another time. Okay. Which is the news about a live action Legend of Zelda movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. So do you wanna do you wanna get into that at all or do you wanna get into the Wes Anderson shorts and revisit that another time? I I don't wanna talk about it too much except to say that despite the fact that it could just be terrible. I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that they said that they've been working on it for years, whatever that means. Sure. Like makes, just makes me go, what? Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I can't not be excited. I guess the the only thing, the only real sticking point, and I feel like they backed themselves into this corner. Do you know what I'm going to say? Link is silent. Link is silent. And he's not really silent. You know what I mean? In the games, he, especially in like Breath of the Wild and um, Tears of the Kingdom, he'll explain and gesticulate. So he is, he is, he talks. We just never hear him. Right. And um, it's like a real, it's going to be a real conundrum for them to both get a group of people that look correct, and mm-hmm. I'm putting that in real heavy scare quotes, uh-huh. but then to get somebody, because now they have voice actors for pretty much everybody else. Mm-hmm. So to get somebody that talks in a way that people don't immediately reject, mm-hmm. that, that I mean, I guess they could just get Chris Pratt to do it. Of course, and, <laughs> and they probably will. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, you're you're thinking about the very thing that everyone is thinking about, which yeah. is how do you adapt that into a movie when it's a player character who never speaks, or at least we never hear him speak. Uh, yeah. And I have been thinking about this, and I believe I know how they should do it. And oh God, please. Well, they'll they'll never do it this way. <laughs> Because I have I have a lot of good ideas and and they're t- they totally never ever would fly. Mm-hmm. And the model that they should look to is Mad Max Fury Road. Interesting. Okay. Most people really love Mad Max Fury Road mm-hmm. to the extent that it has critics. I mainly hear people complain about. Tom Hardy's Max himself is like a nothing character. Yeah. He barely says anything in the movie. He might as well not be there. Yeah. So 
they should not adapt what's typical for the games and make it a story where Zelda is locked in a tower and she needs to be rescued by Link. Yes. They should write a story where Zelda and Link are on an adventure together. I agree. Yes. And Zelda is more like the main character, which, by the way, it's her name in the title. Sure is. It's her legend, baby. And She's the Link- one who was a dragon for 10,000 fucking years. And Link is her warrior, protector, you know, silent companion. And, you know, they, you know, Ganon, he like takes over the castle or whatever. They're like cast out, you know, they're being hunted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to, you know, they, they have to go on a quest to find the Master Sword um together mm-hmm. so that she's she's there and it's a, you know it's an it's about their it's a, as much as it's about the quest that they're on it's about their relationship and how like you know at the beginning like this i think is typical maybe it's not typical at least i think it was in breath of the wild like part of their backstory is that like she doesn't like him yeah like She's like, this guy, he's assigned to protect me. He's always around. He's creepy. He's weird. I wish he wasn't there. <laughs> like, that's what her thats what her normal life is like. Mm-hmm. And then that's disrupted and, you know, everything changes. And you follow them, like, falling in love or, like, becoming reliant or, any, or becoming a good team, yeah. you know, on an adventure together. Jay, my friend Jay, um, posited to me a similar suggestion, but he was suggesting actually that, like, we just stick with, that Zelda just is the protagonist, Mm -hmm. and that Link doesn't show up until, like, halfway through the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, like the end of, like, the first act into the second act is Link showing up, and her being like, where have you been? Mm Um, yeah, and I will say they're not going to do that as much as we would like to, but I will say there is a precedent that might make it closer to that, which is the Mario movie, Mm. did bring in Princess Peach a lot more actively as a character than they could have. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. So I'm not saying that it's gonna, um... It's not going to be what we want, because what could we want? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not even sure what I want, but... Um... I know exactly what I want. <laughs> and it's Zelda is the main character, and Link is her silent companion. Yeah. And they're on an adventure together. But I think it might and be it... closer than nothing. Like, mm-hmm. I think it might be closer than, like, Ocarina of Time. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. The the ocarina of time will tell. (laughs) So, So, you ready to Wes and? Yeah, I'm. I'm ready. Um, I, 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 you probably have more to say about this than I do. At least that's what you've indicated to me. Do you? Can I? Can I tell you? Entry point. (laughs) Yeah, here's my entry point. So initially when this news came out, it was the Sugarman, the sugar, I keep calling him Sugarman, the Henry Sugar movie, the, the, what's the name of it? The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. 
And so when the shorts came out, I watched that and it was 39 minutes long. And I was like, oh, I have a lot to say about this. And uh, you kept saying the shorts. And I was like, it's weird that he's describing these as shorts. I mean, I guess it's sort of like a Matryoshka doll of stories. Uh, And then I was like, I need to rewatch this. And so I searched Wes Anderson on Mm -hmm. Netflix and discovered there are four. Yeah. (laughs) When did you discover this? Thursday. Okay. So it's been a month and a half. (laughs) But I will say, I know that you guys kept saying shorts or whatever. I don't think I heard a single person mention any of the other names. Except mm-hmm. Henry Sugar in the entire time we- leading up to this. Right. Um, but that said, um, I've done a real deep dive into them. I watched them once, um, sort of not with not taking notes. And then I watched them a second time last night and this morning taking notes. And so, yeah, I have a lot to say about them. Great. And um, the first, the, the, my sort of thesis about these I think, well, side note, I think we need to talk about the swan last. Okay. Um, But my sort of thesis is that I feel like, obviously, like, we know the sort of background here is that, like, Wes Anderson, like, didn't totally want to do it this way. Is that what you sort of indicated to me? Yes. The, the, we've we talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, I've, I've read Wes Anderson talking in one or more interviews about how for years and years he wanted to adapt Henry Sugar and in you know independent of him and his his will or his desires mm-hmm. you know the rights to most or all of Roald Dahl's stories ended up with Netflix right and it was clear that doing it for Netflix was the only way it could be done I feel like my sort of thesis here is that I think that he sort of took, I think he thought very much about the fact that these would be shown mostly on people's TVs and phones and computer screens. Because these feel, I I have a bunch of different words that I like describing them with, but they almost feel more like dioramas or museum pieces. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're pl- they're plays in a lot of ways because of the yes. staging, but right. it's not. It goes beyond a play um, to me. It feels right. very much like um, school child's uh, project, where um, a very clever one, where he's thinking a lot about um, the fact that we're in very we're very rarely outside, and mm-hmm. when we are outside, it's like very clearly in a space that feels smaller. Right. And um, I feel like he, if it were me, I would guess that he was like, these are going to be on a smaller screen. So Mm. they're going to be just as intricate and detailed, but it's also going to be, it's going to feel like a smaller space that we're inside. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in those terms because I, I, I just sort of, without thinking about it, took it for granted that Wes Anderson is going to do everything his way. He's going to Mm. realize his vision uh, as he wants to, regardless of the medium. 
I was not thinking about the possibility that he was giving consideration to the Netflix machine. And uh, this is a very real consideration from what I understand being a total outsider layperson mm-hmm. who just listens to podcasts where people talk about movies and TV and content and Netflix and streaming and everything. And my understanding is that there's a sort of Netflix house style mm-hmm. where what is taken into consideration is primarily people may be watching this on their phones instead mm-hmm. of on a normal or larger size screen. So shoot everything so that it works that mm-hmm. way. And I've watched something on Netflix recently where I had the thought, huh, I wonder if they did that because of this. And I watched something else on Netflix recently where I thought, huh, they really did a bad job of this. Oh, interesting. And one of them, the one that did a bad job was the anime Cyberpunk Edgerunners, where often dialogue will take place between two characters who are not in the same space. They're communicating in their heads with like a voice chat that they Mm -hmm. think into existence and that and it's in Japanese. And instead of having subtitles like all the other dialogue, you see the words that they're saying to each other on the screen. They're speaking. You hear Japanese, but you can read the English on the screen. And it's like text messages. Okay, yeah. But the but the words were too small for me. They were uh... smaller than the subtitled dialogue in a normal scene. Mm-hmm. And I was not watching this on my phone, but I was watching it on an iPad I'm on the exercise bike behind me. Yeah. And the iPad is where you see the GameCube and the PlayStation uh, right, behind yeah. me. Um, I think I'm like, what? Less than 10 feet away from my iPad screen. Yeah. And I couldn't read the words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this is a failure. And this was made for Netflix. Yeah. The opposite of that is that we've been watching Mindhunter, which was also made for Netflix. Mm-hmm. And very often... They will go uh, from city to city mm-hmm. and the show will announce where they are by putting the words on the screen. It'll say Park City, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And the words take up the entire screen. It says <laughs> in the biggest letters possible, yeah. Park City, Kansas. And I thought, one, that looks cool. So it's successful. Yeah. But two... Maybe they made that decision because they were thinking some people might watch this on a tiny, tiny, tiny screen. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I I don't think, I think that when, in my mind, the way that Wes Anderson is thinking about this, and maybe I'm wrong, is like the medium that he's working with is already smaller. I mean, so Henry, the the wonderful, I'm sorry, say it again. The wonderful story of Henry Sugar. Is is a novel. Is a novel adapted into a short, which is 39 minutes long. Yes. The other three are short stories, and they're adapted all exactly 17 minutes. <laughs> that are, yes, 17 minutes long. Yes. Did you read the short stories? No, I haven't read any of it. So I haven't looked at the novel, but because I knew the other three were short stories, I looked them up yesterday when I was doing my deeper dive. And um, Rat Catcher and um, Poison are, I want to say, 90% verbatim Mm -hmm. from the short story. 
Yeah, um, because the shorts, the Wes Anderson shorts, they have narration and a lot of it. Yes. And um, part of the reason I want to talk about The Swan last is because it's it's he cut a lot more out of that one. Um, mm. And he made very few edits, too. And he actually made a really important edit at the end of Poison that I want to talk about. Um, okay. Believe it or not, this is the episode where Wes Anderson does race. Yes. <laughs> um, but I thought that that was interesting, too, because in, oh, so what I was saying is in my mind, Wes Anderson, instead of looking at this as an annoyance or as um, a directive from Netflix, saw it as a new constraint. Um, that's what I would like to believe, because <laughs> I think that it's more interesting that way. <laughs> he seemed, as I have already talked about on the podcast, he seemed willing to publicly be pretty clear that he was never happy to be working for Netflix. Yes. I'm not sure he was happy to work for Netflix, but I do, I can imagine that he would have still taken it seriously. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. No. And, and I, I think that he achieved what he set out to achieve. And I think that he did it his way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you are thinking of the Netflix of it all in terms of how this thing was put together. Yeah. And I'm thinking of it more in terms of how it was released. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and I, I would sooner leap to the assumption that whatever company he was making this for, he would make it this way. Oh and, yes, and and the thing that he has to be upset about is the release and how it reaches mm -hmm. people's eyes. Um, whereas you are considering, which is in, which I think is interesting, is did the did the medium of Netflix actually affect how the things were made? And I'm wondering too if like. Henry Sugar aside, the other three, if he was like, well, these are short stories that I'm adapting, so I would need to treat them differently than I would treat um, something I wrote myself or Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, which is a full a full novel as well, if a children's novel. And, and as we know, I read the Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he took um, – way more liberties with that than he did with this. It's interesting to me how closely he kept to the source material here. That's one of the things I want to talk a lot about, um, which right. I yeah. which I know you you didn't read, but I, I can speak to in some, I mean, some of the things like, okay, so like, let's, let's, can we start with Henry Sugar? Yeah. Let me just say a broader statement and then oh, yeah. get into one of them is that my way of understanding the, what you just said about how faithfully adapted these stories are it, it speaks to in my mind what i would say seem seems like the basically the whole point of of making these is mm -hmm. that they they seem to me as an audience member to be first and foremost and maybe ultimately as well just a loving tribute to Roald Dahl. Like, yeah, like that's that fair. was the point of making these and releasing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, 
Henry Sugar, I want to start with both because um, it's the longest, and also I feel like it establishes the most of what we're about to see and everything else. Well, and I'm sorry to, uh, again, derail what you're trying to do, but can we just can we just talk about ordering them? Yeah, sure. Putting them in an order. Yeah. So, and this, this, by the way, is probably in other, in anyone else's mind, the most boring way you could talk about these. And it is the only in, way that I'm interested in talking about them. Uh-huh. Is the fact that when they were released, I didn't watch them immediately. Mm-hmm. I was vaguely aware that there were four of them and that they were not all put up at once. But by the time I watched them for the first time, they were all four available. I See, I didn't even and know any of this. They, <laughs> and they, once they are all up, you know, once you come to them as I did, which is mm-hmm. a little bit late... And they're all there and they are all there. Each is its own separate thing you can select on Netflix. Well, now they're not in any order. Mm -hmm. So how do you decide the order in which to watch them? I thought it was natural to save the longest one for last. Uh I thought surely if you were programming these... To all be watched in one sitting, the long, the much longer one would be like the feature, like ending up, which you save for last. Like when you have a collection of short stories and it ends with a novella. So I made the decision that we were going to watch them in alphabetical order. (laughs) So we watched Poison, then The Rat Catcher, then The Swan, then The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. Mm Mm-hmm. I later looked up the order in which they were released because there is an order because they came out one per day for four days. Oh, okay. And they came out in reverse alphabetical order. Oh. Henry Sugar on September 27th, The Swan on the 28th, The Rat Catcher on the 29th, and Poison on the 30th. Very interesting to end with Poison. So I coincidentally <laughs> watched them backwards. As if you were going back through time. And then re-watching them specifically in anticipation of talking about them here today, mm-hmm. I watched them in release order. Okay. Okay. Now, you you were saying you started with Henry Sugar. Yes. Because... That was the only one I knew was out initially. <laughs> initially, yes. <laughs> but when I rewatched them, I um, rewatched that one first um, because I well, okay. When I was watching them, the first when I when I watched the shorts, I don't remember the order the, the the shorter ones. I don't remember the order. But last night into this morning, when I rewatched them closely, I started with the one I had watched already, and then I watched. Uh, rat catcher poison and the swan and that was just um just what happened i think it was because it was the way that it showed up on the bar when i searched for wes anderson uh but maybe i'm wrong but i also want to talk about them in that order because they're i think that they get sufficiently weirder okay so yeah so let's talk about them from that 
perspective, starting so, starting with Henry Sugar. So Henry Sugar also establishes a lot. So the other thing, I guess sort of the other general things to talk about this here is that we have similar casts of care, similar casts. By casts, I mean like actors in each one. All of them are British, um, mm-hmm. which makes sense because Roald Dahl is British. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, uh, is not normal for Wes Anderson most of the time. Um, and, and, oh, go and ahead. we can, we can also talk about them in terms, I mean, when you talk about a Wes Anderson cast, you mostly talk about it in terms of he's working again with his favorite people he's worked with before. Mm-hmm. In this case, Benedict Cumberbatch, new. Yep. Dev Patel, new. Yes. Richard Ayaday, new. Mm-hmm. Rupert Friend was in Asteroid City. Okay, yeah. And Ray Fiennes, obviously, star of Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes. Those about- are the, those are, who have I left out? Ben Kingsley. And Ben Kingsley, yes. Was he in something? I just sort of had the thought, like, was he in Life Aquatic or... But I, no, I don't think so. I don't... I think he's new too. Ben Kingsley yeah. is just sort of like in my brain, if that makes sense. Like, So there's there are six. I, <laughs> yeah. I named five and I left out the sixth. Yeah. No women, not a single woman, does not pass the Bechdel test. No, not even close. <laughs> um, but also it's worth noting that many of these actors end up playing multiple parts. Even within the same short, as yes. is the case with Henry Sugar where there's more room for that to happen because it's, it's for 40 minutes. So in that way, it's sort of, and that's sort of where also like I, you know, when we're talking about genre, um, the play aspect comes in um, because in a play, like for example, my favorite musical of all time, which is a musical, not a play, but you get my point. My favorite musical of all time. Do you know what this is? Mm-mm. It's into the woods. Mm. Into the Woods is perfect. I have, I, I, I measure every other musical up against Into the Woods. And, uh, I feel like it is doing a lot with the way that the, it's written. I feel like it does a lot with, you know, uh, turning the way we think about certain fairy tales. Uh, every other musical is silly. Into the Woods is very serious and is my favorite. Yes, and this is coming back to me now because you you love the movie because you're a big fan of James Corden, right? <laughs> I have never actually seen the movie. Good for you. <laughs> but I was in Into the Woods Jr. Mm. And I played the witch. And Into the Woods Jr., if you can believe it, is just the first act. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> um, but because of this, I watched and, and owned, I don't know where it is now, it was at my mom's house, um, the filmed stage production of Into the Woods with the original cast that had Bernadette Peters playing the witch. Mm-hmm. Bernadette Peters, incredible. Yes. Um, But in that, the wolf is played by the same guy who plays Cinderella's prince because the wolf obviously has a song very early on and mm-hmm. then has this whole deal with the grandmother and Little Red, but then, of course, is killed. And so because of this and because it's a play... Um, you, you use, if somebody Mm -hmm. just stops showing up, you might as well use him as a different character, especially if he's in a giant wolf suit. Um, also side note, 100% Google this because, and I'm not saying Google it like 
you have to see it. It's more so like when you see it, you'll think, I cannot believe they allowed this. The wolf costume in this play is has a full penis. Mm-hmm. It, it is like the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. Who made this choice? Hmm. Why is it there? He's literally dancing with a, a literal child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think part of the reasons there is because of a lot of what the play is trying to say about like mm-hmm. the fairy tales and what a dream, what a wish is and stuff like that. But it is, it is insane looking. I highly suggest looking it up. Um, I'm but yeah. To turn on incognito mode. Google that. Yes. <laughs> Just Google the wolf into the woods. Um, Bernadette Peters. Um, sure. But. Uh, yeah, so like because of this, that it's it's interesting how that part of the genre comes into play. Like mm-hmm. the idea that if you have this sort of limited cast um mm-hmm. in a play, you're going to use the cast for multiple parts. And right. so to have that in the sort of live action is also um interesting. And also I think gives an argument that they should be not that they weren't just released together, but that they were made together as well. Right. Um so yeah, so in Henry Sugar, we have a little Matryoshka doll, mm-hmm. and we also get the meta part two, which is that Ray Fine is playing Roll Doll. Yep. And he's sitting in his little chair, and he has a little heater that's clicking on and off throughout every one of the shorts. Mm-hmm. And in Henry Sugar, he shows up, this is the other reason why I think Henry Sugar should be we should is first is because we get introduced to Roald Dahl up front. Yes. In the other shorts, he doesn't show up right away. Yes. It, it, it is. It, once you've seen them all, it is plain to see why Henry Sugar is first and meant to be seen first, which I still think is a little bit absurd because I still think, why wouldn't you watch the longest one last? Mm-hmm. But the, perhaps the, Perhaps the point is they weren't all released at once. They 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 were almost meant to be watched one a day instead of four in one sitting. Yeah. And so yes, it's clear Henry Sugar is first because Henry Sugar begins by introducing you to Roald Dahl in his element, and you see a little bit of him muttering to himself almost as if. It's look, it looks nothing like a documentary, but the from the way he's speaking about how like this is my writing board and these are my pencils, it's it's as if, you know, a a, a snippet from a documentary about his life or something before he begins narrating the story. Yeah. I also think and this is this is a question I had that I that I don't think anybody can well maybe somebody can answer but probably not you which is that um I was also so interested in how um like what parts of real life did Wes Anderson draw from for the way that he has staged Roald Dahl's sitting area where he mm-hmm. is shown shows up because the desk that he has is literally a piece of wood and then mm-hmm. he has like a roll, like a tube of cardboard or something like that. Yep. It looks it looks so anti Wes Anderson to me. Yes, but 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 most definitely Wes Anderson has spoken about he has visited mm-hmm. 
gypsy house, as they do not hesitate to name it in no, they don't. the shorts, <laughs> and as it was called. And um, I'm I'm sure that a lot of the imagery um, is uh, is taken right from the real thing. I mean, yeah. And wild. that makes me think that Roald Dahl, ha- that was his writing mm-hmm. desk, was a board with a piece of cardboard to sort of hold it at a slight angle. And the heater, I, am- I imagine, is probably a detail like that. The heater mm-hmm. is sort of a distraction because it makes a clicking sound as it turns on and off. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't you have it just consistently on throughout the thing? Well, because it's probably a, a probably a detail from real life and probably gives you a sense of like what it was really like to be in that space. There's a heater and it makes a clicking sound as it goes on and off by itself. Yeah. And I think so we start with that and then we sort of move deeper. So we go from him to Henry Sugar, um, who's a gambler. To learning about um, him encountering a book, and in the book is a medical um, recountant of a doctor played by Dave. D- Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Dave wow. Paddle. Dave Paddle. Dev Patel, who I love, mm-hmm. um, uh, of a man played by Ben Kingsley who could see without using his eyes. And then that goes into the final sort of inmost inner doll, which is uh, a, the story of how that man, uh, played by Ben Kingsley, learned how to see without his eyes. And something that I think is not very... On, in- oh, go ahead. So not only that, but Ben Kingsley meets the yogi, played by Richard Ayoday. Yes. And technically, Ben Kingsley does speak with him, so there is dialogue, but it's... It's mostly monologue mm-hmm. by Richard Ayaday. It doesn't, you know, cut to a new sequence in the same way that it does for Dev Patel and for Ben Kingsley. But mm-hmm. there is kind of like a tiny little Richard Ayaday as the yogi in the center of the Matroiska doll. And something that I love specifically, too, is like very often when you have these sort of frame stories, um, at least in film, you sort of go deeper, but then you sort of skip back to the front and you really go the whole way in and then one by one pull out the whole way through the scenes we were already in. Yes. Um, it's, re- I think, really pleasing. Um, so there's a couple of things that he does here, which is, uh, like, not surprising, but uh, definitely like a new Wes Anderson thing. He uses a lot of practical effects. Hmm. And do you know, like, for example, how does the yogi float? Well, yes, that 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 is one of the most memorable, remarkable images in the whole thing is uh, seeing very plainly the yogi and later also Benedict Cumberbatch as Henry Sugar sit on a wooden crate on its side and uh, at at one moment turn it on its side and sit back down on it. And the reason for turning it on, a, you know, turning it to one side is because, well, on that side in particular, it's painted to look like the background. It's painted to look like what would be underneath him were he floating in the air. Uh, and uh, it caught it you know, very much calls attention to itself. Yes. As it, as it looks quite good. 
And he also does things like Benedict, they have, that's the one where he has Benedict Cumberbatch like walking, but he's not actually walking. It's like a vid, it's like a projected. What I think they call rear projection. Yes. And they not only use rear projection, but you see stage hands mm-hmm. wheel in the rear projection screen uh, just before it, they use it. I also think it's worth so, and then because all, all, all of these things, I think, are imaginings of how this might be done were it actually a play. Yes, which also means I think that it bears mentioning that that is not a rule for how this is made. Exactly. There are a lot of things that you do see that would be impossible were this a live stage production. Mm -hmm. For example, Benedict Cumberbatch does a monologue where he repeatedly walks out of frame and re-enters in a new elaborate costume, Mm -hmm. and he does it in seconds flat. So it is editing trickery Mm -hmm. that couldn't be done live in front of your eyes unless it was a series of actors only pretending to be him. Yeah. And the other thing that I think couldn't actually happen is the way that they move the set pieces. Hmm. And I think that there is like a real amount of set pieces moving that's happening. Mm-hmm. But they, the way that the set pieces are set up um, is they sort of, they almost feel like a puzzle box is the word I wrote down, which is again, mm-hmm. sort of like leaning back into that like idea of diorama or like museum mm-hmm. piece or like living museum piece. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. But the way that they end up lining up, they also, they're they are not just, they're creating a sense of illusion. Right. That isn't just like a trick, a sleight of hand or something like that. It's, it's like this sense of depth and complexity and um, something that if you were seeing it as a play, even if they could move everything in the right place, you would still see the edges. And mm-hmm. now the edges are your TV. Right. And so- I, I- I think the I think the way that we're used to seeing this type of thing realized in a Wes Anderson movie is with the panning of the camera and how it often pans between rooms mm-hmm. and walls are cut out in such a way that makes that visually possible, even though it doesn't literally make sense. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of achieving a very similar thing with very little movement of the ca- or relatively little yes. movement of the camera. Instead, the walls are lifting, falling away, being wheeled to the side out of frame um to transition from one location to another. Yeah. A- as yeah. you might see in a play with with really elaborate set design. And this is something that we saw some of in the French Dispatch and Asteroid City. But it is also, I think, worth mentioning that there's an obvious connection to the story of Henry Sugar for why one might think to do this, Mm -hmm. which is that Henry Sugar is a story about a man who learns to see without using his eyes. Effectively, one way of using this is it's like you have x-ray vision. It's like, well... He may not literally be seeing through the bandages. He might actually be seeing 
with something independent of his eyes. And so there's no need to see through the bandages if it's with something other than his eyes. Mm -hmm. But the effect is the same as if his eyes could see through the bandages. Yeah. And likewise, when entire, you know, facades lift out of frame and then we see what the room inside, that's a little bit like a realization of what if you had x-ray vision. Exactly. Yes. And I think it makes, I think it's very, this is part of why I, the the connection between like the way that he's framing it for us to look at and what the characters themselves are hypothetically experiencing. Um, and then also like the real emphasis on the artifice of it mm-hmm. in a way that is like, obviously in like, you know, my favorite, everyone's favorite. I don't even know why I'm specifying me. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, mm-hmm. When you have the Belafonte mm-hmm. cut in half. Right, um, the there's, there's a huge artifice to that as well. But right. here, it's not just like you're seeing something as if you can just move through space and time. It's like you're seeing, this shows up later with in the Swan with the binoculars, but you're seeing like the screw... Mm-hmm. Um, those like twist screw things that you can like hand screw onto a bolt, um, yeah. which could have, they could have very easily just built this sort of binoculars that you're looking through to just not have that or to just have flat screws, you know, like this, this, the, the head of a screw or a nail that you're seeing instead of these like really manual sort of physical objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it works really well for Henry Sugar. I think the other sort of thing I wanted to point out is that there were a cup there was there was a new a new Wes Anderson shot in this. That's very interesting for me to hear you say because I have a very similar thing to say but it's not in Henry Sugar. It's the top down shot. Mm. It happens in this and it happens in Poison. Where the it's not just that the camera's looking straight down, which is what mm-hmm. they do at the casino shot when they're actually at the poker table. Mm. It's that the character looks up and speaks mm. into the camera because they're speaking this like these di- this dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't think Wes Anderson's done a shot like this before, um, especially not one. Because again, the other thing with like the artifice of it all is that there's so much talking direct, so much talking directly to the viewer that it's almost like the fourth wall isn't there in a lot of ways, except for the physical fact that I'm a human living person and there's a TV screen. <laughs> um, which is again why it feels like very much like diorama museum piece to me. But I also specifically wanted to bring up that shot because that comes to the giant thing, which is that these people are talking directly to the viewer, but they also were saying all these dialogue tags. I said, he said. And the dialogue tags, they always look at us to say. Right. <laughs> I can't imagine, which I could not tell was good. I could not decipher if I thought it was good or if it was annoying or if it was gonna grow on me because of how strange it was or if it just was very annoying for like dev patel to constantly be flicking his head at the camera right so what all these shorts are doing that we are not used to seeing is that the main character 
is narrating the story directly to us, the audience, as the same character is in the story. They're mm-hmm. they're in the moment. And they are sort of dividing their time between looking at camera and narrating and playing their part in the scene, interacting yeah. with the other characters. And this is most noticeable when there is dialogue and they take the time to, at the end of their line, look at the camera and say, I said. And that is almost, I for me, a little bit too cute. Yeah. Or, or twee. To, to be an asset to the thing. Mm-hmm. Counteracting that is what seems to really rise to the surface in all of this for me is the way that the, whoever is, and there's what, there's, so, and now I'm not just counting Henry Sugar, counting all of them. Mm-hmm. At one time or another, I think all six of them have to do this narration mm-hmm. to camera. And I guess in Ray Fine's case, he doesn't have to juggle dialogue and narration monologue because he's always doing one or the other. Mm-hmm. But for most of them, there's this juggling act. And whoever is doing it, it is all so precisely extremely fast paced it's so fast to the point where you you one might think a a a huge part of this exercise is showcasing how incredible it is that anyone could do this it's like they hired Buster Rhymes as a consultant to tell them how to talk so fast. Speaking wise, let alone five or six people do it. And yes. they all do it impeccably. Yes. Just the fact, like the mere fact. And it's so funny too. I wanted to bring this up and I'm glad you did too. It's so funny too because when they're talking so fast, there's a real urgency to the, what I will call the exposition. Um there's this urgency because they're saying it so fast, but then when they click into having dialogue with somebody else or doing something else, they um, talk at like what I would consider to be a normal pace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there is, there's not just a flipping between them addressing us and them addressing the people in their story. There's also a flipping between this urgent, fast, precise speech mm-hmm. and a normal cadence a that natural, they would have. Yes. How an actor might play a character. Uh, yeah. In a, in a, in a natural uh, human way, as opposed to, yes, when they're in narrator mode and they are almost robotically mm-hmm. keeping the same, uh, impossibly quick pace. I have, Three tiny notes on this before rat. I want to talk about Ratcatcher, where I have some other sort of like general things I want to bring up that are most mm-hmm. exemplified in Ratcatcher. Yeah. Um, 
when we're in Henry Sugar's apartment looking out the windows because they're in the background, it's like Hotel Chevalier buildings with Budapest hotel colors. Mm, interesting. Um, the branch tunnel outside of Roald Dahl's how little writing house is very, very fantastic, Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also something that I noticed that I feel like he does most, I guess most in Henry Sugar, but more in these than in other stuff he does is we know that he loves like real intricacy and like objects and everything placed. He uses a lot of patterns in this. Mm. Did you notice that? I didn't think about it, but that's interesting. So there's like, it's, there's in Henry Sugar, there's like wallpaper where it's like very intricate patterns. Mm-hmm. And that shows up a lot and in a lot of different like ways. Mm-hmm. But even beyond that, he's using a lot of backgrounds that are pattern E. So mm-hmm. like there's the, in um, Henry Sugar, there's the, um, when Benedict Cumberbatch is in the library, the library is essentially a pattern. Sure. Um, but then, and ugh, I, I have so many things to say about the swan, but like the swan too has these backgrounds that are sort of like the pattern of like a bunch of reeds next to each uh, other. Right. Yeah. Um, which I, is not outside of the realm of Wes Anderson's aesthetic, but definitely felt specific to these mm, mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, like anything else, Asteroid City mm-hmm. and Aves full length mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. Um, I want to call out one scene in Henry Sugar before yes. we move on, because it struck me the second time watching it that I think this one scene in particular, I, I can't overstate how funny I think it is mm-hmm. and how just as a piece of comedy, how it is up there with with anything else that Wes Anderson has directed in terms of how funny it is. Mm-hmm. And it's the scene where Henry Sugar is on his balcony. I was going and, to, yes. <laughs> and, the, and the camera doesn't move. It just holds on this medium to wide shot of Henry Sugar on his balcony, tossing uh, money off slowly at first and then a bunch at once before the end. And everything else that's playing out in the scene is just audio. Uh-huh. And the way that it ramps up and the way that you hear the other, you know, the dialogue of the people on the street, but you can kind of just make out what they're saying. And the fact that by the end, it's a riot in the streets and you literally hear a car crash and people (laughs) screaming. It's so, so funny. (laughs) Especially at the very beginning when he's talking to a guy Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, really, like, it's for you to keep. And you just hear that guy go, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's really, it's really, really good. And it's a really good use of, um, again, that's like one of the few scenes where we're outside. Mm -hmm. The other sort of part where we're like outside is. Is the rear projection part. Is the rear projection part. And also when Dev Patel's character walks outside at one point for like. 30 seconds he's in well, front of the building. I, yeah, and I think sort of maybe the most amazing arresting shot in in the whole thing is when they is when the camera has to race to follow them because they're yes. racing to follow the bandaged rap Ben Kingsley. And yes. that that is so handheld and dynamic that it looks way different from most Anything Wes Anderson. From Wes Anderson. Things. 
also, which also makes me think of very near the end of Poison, when Benedict Cumberbatch finally jumps up and the camera gets very shaky mm-hmm. and the lights strobe. And that feels very, you know, to its credit and and accomplishing what it sets out to do, unlike uh, what you would expect to see from him. Yes. Um, but you, so from here, if I were thinking about the order in which you watch these, I would go to the swan next, but you have your reasons for wanting to save that for last. Yes. So, uh, you want to talk rat catcher, go for it. I have less to say about this one because it felt the most normal to me, if that makes sense. So look, (laughs) the rat catcher (laughs) has... Some things going for it that cannot be ignored. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying it's boring. It just feels the most, the least weird. Does it, though? <laughs> because because it also has the most stop motion animation. Yes. It has a stop motion rat mm-hmm. that delivers some of Rafe Fiennes' dialogue. Yes. It has, I think it, it it does something that I think they all do, um, but maybe, I, I correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think it does this the most of them, which is it makes you think about props that aren't there. That's what, that was the main thing I wanted. The reason I wanted to talk about this was to talk about the fact that sometimes in these shorts, they talk through parts of scenes and don't show them. And the actors have to do pantomime. Yes. With things that we hear from narration are in the scene, but they literally physically aren't on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but mainly, uh, the rat catcher has Ray Fiennes playing... Another character, not just Roald Dahl, he plays the titular rat catcher, mm-hmm. which they more often refer to as the rat man. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a performance that is a, a wonderful marriage of the way that he's styled mm-hmm. in costume, hair, makeup, the fake teeth, etc. The nails. Yeah, and the nails. And and his performance, and mm-hmm. it's not just his voice, but also the way every movement that he makes, <laughs> the way that he walks, it's very very important. Uh, and and it's it's co- sort of a sort of a comedy character, mm-hmm. sort of a broad one, which I appreciate. But in addition to all of that, it also has Richard Ayade doing the narration in this one. Yes. Which I am totally in the bag for. And as funny as that balcony scene was, nothing is funnier when than the moment when Richard Ayade has to let slip the line of dialogue. You'd almost have to be a rat yourself. And at that moment, it does a really tight close-up on his face, and he says it so guilelessly... If you've ever seen the IT crowd, it is so 100% obvious mm-hmm. why Richard Ayade is right for this part. Mm-hmm. And it's for that one line. <laughs> he 
for that one line, he just is Moss again mm-hmm. from the IT. He just is his character from the IT crowd. It is completely the same <laughs> <laughs> as how he would say that line as Moss. Mm-hmm. And look, would I recommend that people watch the IT crowd today? No. The creator is an idiot and a monster. <laughs> but did I love watching the IT crowd once upon a time? Yes. It's yeah. hysterical, particularly Richard Ayode. I- yeah, Sorry mm-hmm. if I say it wrong. Yeah. And I feel like this one too, with the, with the, with the pantomiming, it's like, it's, it's, it's things that are so physical that they're pantomiming. Like, they're literally pantomiming a container of poison that they could have just given this man a tin. Mm-hmm. Why did they do this? Because later in the thing, he says, I, I always have one or two rats on me, and there's, like, a rat and a ferret chasing each other around his shirt. And I can understand why they wouldn't, they would they would have him sort of pantomime or, or you know, stand there through the narration for that. But you why could, the poison? <laughs> well, I think you sort of answered your own question. Please tell me. I think that there's a lot of ways that you can interpret this. And I could come up with other answers. Mm-hmm. But I think an easy answer that may or may not really be the case is that you need the tin of poison to be pantomimed to prepare the audience mm-hmm. for this is in the realm of possibility. So mm-hmm. that when it's done again at a time when it is done by necessity, mm-hmm. we understand, okay, this is something that they're doing. And so I am prepared to suspend my disbelief enough to to hear what the narration is saying and take it at face value, even though I'm seeing something else on yeah, screen, which is the absence fair. of what I'm hearing about. I think it's also interesting Something else that felt not Wes Anderson-y to me is that Wes Anderson doesn't normally let there be gross things. Mm-hmm. Like, he'll let there be some amount of gore. Like, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about um, the suicide scene in Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Or um, uh, Owen Wilson's face in the Darjeeling Limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but or even, the, or even the death of Willem Dafoe's rat character in yes. Fantastic Mr. Fox, despite being animated and ostensibly for children, there's, there's a little bit of brutality in that moment. But even when you see like the cuts on his arms in Royal Tenenbaums, they're very like, they're not neat, but they're very intentional looking. Sure. And so to have um, Ray Fine have these, like, really long, gross, unkempt nails. Well, and and as nasty as his appearance is, I would say probably the nastiest thing in this short and in all the shorts is when he spits out the blood. Yes! Yes! That's, but see, okay, I want to say two things about this. And one is just reiterating what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is that is nastier and grosser than you would expect to see from a Wes Anderson thing. Mm-hmm. And then also hand in hand with that, I want to say the opposite, which is what I have sort of something of a drum that I have been beating 
for as long as we've been talking about Wes Anderson stuff, mm-hmm. which is that he's a lot. Um, I don't want to use the word nastier or grosser, but he's 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 a lot harsh, harsher, maybe is the word than than most people ever give him credit for. Yes, that's fair. Yeah, like he his stories uh, are sometimes unflinching about some harsh realities. Yeah. And that's not what most people think of when they think of him and his work. They just think of how twee or perfect or wholesome or idyllic it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, that's fair too. Um, But I was thinking specifically with how gross the nails were that the pantomiming of the rat poison means that you're looking at his hands the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so there is... In what you're saying also, too, and, like, the intentionality of it not being super twee, there Mm -hmm. is something to be said for him saying, like, not only will I not give you, not only will I make you look at these nails, but I will make you only look at these nails because I will not even give you a tin to focus on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, totally. And it highlights just the way that he moves his hands even more to have him do that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, like... Yeah, it's 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 character it's character work, right? Yeah, it, it's a, it's a showcase for this performance, and it's more of a showcase because you get to see how he would do this when he actually doesn't have something to work with that he's mm-hmm. supposed to. Um, and and that's sort of an old fashioned idea. Um, I want to point out the tiniest little detail in the rat catcher, and I want to start by asking you a question. Which will either justify the point I want to make or undermine it, which uh-huh. is fine. How much time do you think passes in the story of the rat catcher? I it's like a few days, right? It's like minimum three days, right? Because because he explains that his plan is that you feed them oats. And he says they're gonna get plain old oats that they're gonna love today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And yeah. I think he stops there. So if he if it goes according to plan, then the day he uses the poison is minimum the fifth day mm-hmm. from the beginning of this story. Now, in now, um, Richard Ayaday is working at a desk outdoors on a curb, and behind him is the facade mm-hmm. of a uh, newspaper office. Mm-hmm. And in the window is a missing persons poster. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom, it says the name of the person. But at yes. the top of the poster, it said, do you know what it says? No, I only know it says Old Bill Jonesy at the bottom. But uh, but that's a distraction from uh-huh. what it says at the top. It says missing three weeks. Oh. We see it more than once. Uh-huh. Once at the beginning. And once toward the end. Why didn't they change it? That's interesting. Isn't it, it like, it's uh, like, look, I'm, I'm being nitpicky on purpose and, yeah. and being, it's called the smug buds for a reason. I'm, it sure I'm, is. I'm being arrogant, giving Wes Anderson a note for something <laughs> that I think he could improve in, in what he made. 
But doesn't it seem like a very cute, clever little Wes Anderson-y thing? Yeah. To have this missing post missing person poster that's just in the background that at the beginning it would say missing four weeks and by missing three weeks and by the end it would say missing four weeks. And that they would even have one of those like actor stagehand people come on and like paste mm-hmm. un- like an updated number on top of it and then walk off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To yeah. show the passing of time. Yes. That's interesting. That's a good point. But instead, the cute, clever, twee little thing that they do to show the passing of time is they have Richard Ayade change his clip-on tie. Yeah. Uh, which is a good moment. Um, I also want to point out that Rupert Friend looks like a knockoff Orlando Bloom. <laughs> that is so horribly spot on. <laughs> <laughs> and I am I can unfortunately say that other people have thought this as well, because when you Google it, there's like side-by-side comparisons. Uh-huh. Um, Kenny wanted me to tell you, that he thinks Rupert looks like Cooper from Twin Peaks. Dale, Agent, Special Agent Dale Cooper of the I FBI? think so, yes. And he um, said that the other guy, which I think he meant the rat, the rat man, looks like Bob. Uh, yeah, well, that, I, <laughs> I, I, that is a comparison that I uh, will uh, swallow more easily. <laughs> I don't think that Rupert Friend particularly looks like Kyle MacLachlan. Kenny showed me some pictures where I was like, I understood what he was saying at the moment, but. Okay. Um, because I haven't watched Twin Peaks, as you know. You um, I know I should. Uh, the other thing sort of structurally that happens in this, which then happens in the other ones too, is again, Doll doesn't show up right away in this one. And so towards the end of this one, it's interesting because they go back with who's telling the story, who's doing the narration between Roald Dahl and Richard Iodey. Um, And it's interesting, and they do it really quick for the end of this one, but it's interesting to see which lines they give to Dahl and which they give to Iodey, especially considering the fact that, again, this one is I want to say 90% verbatim to the short story. Uh, and, and this uh, also made me think of, I want to point out the way that the uh, sequence that you were just referring to, where it's, you know, going back and forth between our narrators mm-hmm. is the same sequence where uh, the rat man is going to kill the rat without using his hands. And, yes. and this is realized in part by uh, Rupert Friend playing the part of the rat. And and the way that this is shot, the way that it's lit, the way that it's framed, the way there are so many cuts and odd angles, it's very special. And there's one shot in particular where the um, frame is so askew. So you get this really slanted look at a close-up mm-hmm. on the rat man's face and he's lit so ominously that I thought, well, I'm not familiar enough with like the old universal monster movies to say for sure that that's what Wes Anderson was thinking of. But Mm -hmm. with my limited knowledge of that subject, that's what it felt like to me was like, okay, I don't think I've seen Wes Anderson do this before. It feels like an homage to Dracula. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, those close-up shots, I forgot about those close-up shots, um, where it's clearly, it it's almost a still image, but 
they're not moving mm-hmm. are really striking and almost scary. Like, yes, right. It's, yeah, it's, it's meant to be scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like there's some kind of classic, like, this is how scary stuff in movies is supposed to be lit and how it's supposed to be yeah. shot from different angles. And it's supposed to have these quick cuts. And that feels very, like, out of an old Frankenstein movie or, or something like that. Yeah. To to in order to to this in the service of making the rat man feel like this like old tiny monstrous character. Mm-hmm. Um do you have anything else to say about the rat catcher? I think we can move on. To poison. poison. Um what, what what do you have to say about poison? Okay, so I didn't take notes. I had just a few very specific things that I knew I wanted to talk about when we talked about these. Mm-hmm. And one of them is a shot in poison. And I want to call it out because it, it does something we're talking a lot about. So our conversation so far mm-hmm. has contained a lot of, Hmm, here's how this is different from what I would expect Wes Anderson to do what I would expect him to do. Yeah. Or what I've seen him do in the past. There's one shot in particular in Poison that made me think this exact type of thing. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm I'm not I'm not uh I don't intend to do the work of doing a full Wes Anderson rewatch anytime soon mm-hmm. and try and find the evidence that contradicts me that actually this is something that he, he's done before or mm-hmm. it might be ordinary for him to do. But in the future, if I can remember this, I'm going to try and bear this in mind. Mm-hmm. In the future, if and when I rewatch a Wes Anderson movie, uh, I'm I'm going to try and be alert and thinking to myself, has he in fact done this before? Mm-hmm. It's a shot of a ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. The sp- the ceiling fan is spinning counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. We the camera is pointed directly up at it, and it's at the center of the frame. And then what happens? It turns right. The camera begins to turn. Yes, ca- I also was like shocked when this happened. We've talked plenty about how Wes Anderson's camera pans. Mm-hmm. and zooms mm-hmm. to change what is exactingly in the frame. But has has Wes Anderson's camera ever turned on its axis in this way? I can't think of a single that time. That felt like a completely new thing to me. Me too, yes. And it is just a shot of a ceiling fan that is like visual filler sort of does this happen in the swan too where it turns in that way i feel like it turns at some point on rupert friend which makes me think it think it happens in the swan is it is it while he's on the train tracks maybe i'll maybe i'll just i want to rewatch the swan with kenny because that one's so weird so i'll i'll put it in the show notes or something but (laughs) But I, think, I I do I think, think you're I correct that 
it doesn't happen it. before this. If it happened in this one, I think I would have caught it, but I'm I'm not 100% confident to mm-hmm. put my foot down and say, no, that's not possible. <laughs> that's not possible. Um, yes, I think what you're saying about the way that he's using his shots in this is absolutely true with the spinning thing, that being new. We also get the um, top-down shot again, which I had mentioned in casino, in the casino scene in Harry, um, uh, uh, Henry Sugar, which is new, feels new anyway. Not nearly mm-hmm. as dramatic because it's definitely still a very, like, the camera set up, we have a scene, we have a frame, but it is from an angle that feels new. Well, and does it, and, and would you agree that if someone on, say, Instagram or TikTok we're doing a Wes Anderson pastiche and you know, all basically all they had in their arsenal was like, I've arranged these items meticulously mm-hmm. uh, at right angles and symmetrically. The picture I have in my head is like items on a desk. I We've definitely which, gotten top down from items on a desk. Right. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that we've gotten it with people. Right. Characters engaging in a, a frame shot from top down. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, um, the other thing that he does in this, in terms of the shots, was he does, we get a lot more of that, like, highly um, play-like set structure moving around. Mm-hmm. And he does, at one point, um, he, Dev Patel is on the left and Ben Kingsley is on the right, and there's a physical wall between them, but the lighting is so clever that they look like, it almost looks like a split screen because the lighting is so radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I wanted to point out just because, like, the artfulness of that seems really, assuming that it was not done digi- you know, digitally, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. so in some way, it just seems like it would be really difficult to do where it could be as distinct as it was. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, we get splits. Do we get split screen in this one? This is the one where we get a lot of split split screen, right? Indeed, yes. Which I feel like we hadn't seen before Asteroid City. Yeah, I do remember it in Asteroid City. Because we get it very hilariously when he's talking to his father-in-law. Right. Um, Yeah, I I love that. I I think I called that out. I loved that part of Asteroid City. I love that too. But that was new in that. Yeah, um, it felt new, certainly. And I, I... Cannot point to from memory a specific example of uh, an older um, scene that would make it not new. Yeah. In say like the Royal Ten. Like I want to say like mm, if I'm going to find it anywhere, I wouldn't be too surprised. I, For some reason when I think of people talking to each other on the phone mm-hmm. in a Wes Anderson story, I think of the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. And so I'm thinking like, hmm, did it happen there? I don't remember. Yeah. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all I have to say about the shots. Can we talk about the differences between this and the short story? Yeah, please. I don't know about this, so I'm eager to hear more. So I I think, so it's worth mentioning that, let me make sure I have my other set of notes up here. Yeah, okay. So it's worth mentioning that um, this is it doesn't pass the Bechdel test as we've discussed, but this particular uh, short does have 
more people in, of color in it than white people in it. True. Uh, because Ben Kingsley had an English mother and an Indian father. Dev Patel is obviously Indian. And then you have Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is also true of... Also um, Ray Fiennes is in it, though. Oh, I guess, yes, as, as Roald Dahl. I guess I was th- not thinking of him because of him. Because Roald Dahl... He's, be- Ray- he's separate. Yeah, yeah, because he's like in a... But I take your point, so it doesn't totally play out, but... It's a tie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More than anything else. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, the characters themselves um, are talking that way, you know, are, are that way in the short story as well. And so in the way that the short story ends, I'm going to start there, though I, though I know that you um, haven't read it, is the short story also ends with um, Benedict Cumberbatch essentially being um, racist, like really fucking mm-hmm. racist. Because yeah. what happens, um, for those of you who maybe don't totally remember, is Benedict Cumberbatch's character, whose name is Harry, thinks that there's a very poisonous snake on him. Um, if the snake bites him, he will definitely die. So they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. Um, Dev Patel calls Ben Kingsley. He comes over, gives him a shot of anti-venom. Um, he has him go back to his house, which he says, uh, he gives him the key to his poison cabinet, which is like, that phrase is like a wet, Wes Anderson wet dream. Mm-hmm. Yes. Key to the poison cabinet. Mm-hmm. I, and yet we don't get to see the poison cabinet, unfortunately, that he, De- Dev Patel doesn't even turn. <laughs> yeah. He simply gets chloroform. They then, you know, pour chloroform through a very tiny funnel and tube um, into Benedict's Cumberbatches like under his sheet and then they pull back the sheet to reveal the snake and there's no snake. Benedict Cumberbatch stands up and jumps around with that shaky shot as you were discovering and both in the short story and in the short film um, uh, Ben Kingsley's character says something like um, maybe you dreamed the snake or maybe you dreamed it. Mm-hmm. And it's in both the short story and the f- the short film it's noted by Dev Patel or by that character that he's saying it sort of out of relief. Right. Like, oh God, like this was so scary, but thank God it's over. And in both cases, Harry Bennett slash Benedict Cumberbatch uh, responds with racism. And in the short story, he says, quote, why you dirty little Hindu sewer rat Shut up, Harry, I said. You dirty little, you dirty black. Harry, I called. Shut up, Harry. It was terrible, the things he was saying. In the short film, they edited this, but they didn't make it not racist. They just made it differently racist. Mm -hmm. They say, you dirty little Bengali sewer rat. And you dirty brown before getting cut off. Mm -hmm. So interesting updates there. The way that the short story ends is the doctor leaves, Ben Kingsley leaves, Dev Patel follows after him, and they have these sort of exchange where he's like, thank you so much, you saved his life. And um, he says, you know, uh, Ben Kingsley says, no, I didn't. And in the short story, he says, you did a wonderful job, I said. Thank you so very much for coming. All he needs is a good holiday, he said quietly, without looking at me. And then he started the engine and drove off. And he very easily could have ended the film that way. 
And instead, the way he ends the film is Dev Patel says to, who is friends with Benedict Cumberbatch's character in the short film, says to Ben's Kingsley, I'm sorry. He's apologizing on behalf of his friend, on behalf of um, the, you know, on he's apologizing for bringing him into this. And he's apologizing for him being racist after he did all this work to save his life, regardless of whether or not the threat was there. And Ben Kingsley says to him, you can't be. And it's like, when I say, I joked earlier, like Wes Anderson does race. I think that's actually a really good edit. Mm. I feel like this acknowledgement between these two people of color who have just experienced somebody being racist and one person trying to apologize for it and then the other one saying, you can't be sorry for this thing you didn't do. Mm -hmm. You can't be sorry that systemic racism exists because we're in this together. Mm -hmm. Um. I can't believe, I mean, again, it's this like half a moment, you know what I mean? I mean, it's obviously poignant because right. it's the last words in the, the film. I'm not, I don't think Wes Anderson is suddenly not uh, problematic with how he deals with people of color in his movies, but I think that, um, I think he nailed it. I think in this mm -hmm. particular one, he nailed it. And I think it's especially poignant to point out that he nailed it because that's not, that's him. That's not right. the short story. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a small uh, moment, but yeah, the significance that you put on it is really interesting. Yeah. That was all I have to say about Poison. Well, I bet you have more to say about the swan. So I'm Okay, what the on. fuck is happening with the swan? <laughs> so, yeah, it, uh, it, it does stand out. And I, I would say that on a, on a surface level, to me, it stands out mainly because it doesn't really have an ensemble. Mm -hmm. It's basically just Rupert Friend. Mm -hmm. Rupert Friend and background, especially one kid in particular. Mm -hmm. And stagehands, which they all have. And of course, as they all do, it has Ray Fiennes as, as Roald Dahl. Mm -hmm. doing some of the narration duty um but uh on some level i am prone to thinking well this must be my least favorite because it doesn't have the appeal of the ensemble and of all the people who are in all of these things rupert friend is the person that i'm least interested in mm -hmm. sorry but in another way, <laughs> I have to think about it and think, hmm, this might be the best or the strongest or the most important. Or at least the most unique. Well, it's, I, I mean, it, it's so, it's so brutal. It's brutal. Yes it's almost like there's it's like when you when you enter into seeing something by Wes Anderson you take for granted that you're going to get more palatable than 
something you would want to look away from because mm-hmm. it's hard to take. And this is like 99% hard to take. Mm-hmm. 1% there's a great solace in the end. Mm-hmm. How would you talk about what's weird about this one? So the reason this one, this one I think is weird in, which by the way, very side note, um, so we don't have to do old business. I do have a note here. Now I'm looking at my notes that says spiral turn of the camera. So it does happen in this one too, because I noted one. it. Okay. Um, but there's two main things happening. The first is that it's, like you said, only Rupert Friend, but it's not just that it's only Rupert Friend. He's like almost entirely just telling the short story. Mm-hmm. And there is some well like, because act- there's 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 no one there there's there's no there's no dialogue yes there's except no for the else. dialogue that he does with himself right exactly doing voices right he he tell he basically narrates yeah he narrates the whole story there's no one for him to play off of mm-hmm. it's it's a it's one long monologue and. It's also weird that because he does play out some of the parts. So, like, I think my actually my favorite practical effect is in this one, mm-hmm. which is when he's lying down on the train tracks yep. and the train goes by and the wheat goes at yep. like flips to an angle and then flips back. Like, yeah. I, I can I can almost see the mechanism that they use to do that, that part, but it's still so impressive. That part is phenomenal. And the sound design is great, too. In that yes. moment. I do, if you want to talk about nits to pick, though, Mm. I have a huge nit to pick with the fact that they put, like, grouted stone underneath his head on the railroad Mm. tracks when it explicitly says in the short story and in the short film that his head's in gravel. Not just because it's like, oh, why did they say one thing and have it be something else, but because he's specifically using the gravel as being loose stone so that he can wiggle his head into it. Yeah, and we don't see... That's almost, you know, it's like... Look, it's a different thing because a hole is different from a physical object. (laughs) But almost like they have to use... Well, they didn't have to, but they did use pantomime for the tin of poison oats. It's like, okay, we're hearing about this thing, but in this case, we're not actually seeing it happen. We hear about how he wiggled his head so that he would uh, be uh, lower. Yes. Uh, and and partially inside the, the gravel. Um, but we don't see the hole for his head. We don't see movement of gravel. But the other reason that this one is so weird is because for so much of it, he's walking through what I can only describe as a corn maze, though it's not corn. (laughs) No. And it also varies, like, what it is. Yes. It's not one thing throughout He's in, like, a hallway Mm -hmm. made of plants. Uh Uh-huh. And it's, you know, we get the sort of, um, like artifice again where occasionally it will open and there will be like a door in the wheat right and then somebody hands him something yeah oh go ahead no well i was just gonna say i feel like i can rationalize that as a choice for adapting this story and 
in my mind, I would frame it as a kind of, um, you might read the story or you might hear about the story of mm-hmm. what happened to the boy. And if you weren't being very generous, you might think, well, you weren't trapped physically in that situation. You were in the great outdoors. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you just, why didn't you run away? Or why didn't you go somewhere else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you couldn't have been cornered. You were outside. Mm-hmm. And the way that they've made these sets and sort of made hallways, as you said, out of these like hedges uh, and thrushes and, and whatnot is like, what if you could be physically trapped, but you're still outside? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I like in a, that. In a, in a sort of hedge maze, as you called it. Yeah. Hedge maze. That's better than corn maze. <laughs> sure. Good job. <laughs> but so what were you about to say when I... I want to talk off? about the huge differences, because I think this also makes it extremely weird, between this and the short story. Okay. So the short story has... Three times as much dialogue. Mm-hmm. And they cut out almost all of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost all of it. Not almost all of it, because there's still dialogue and stuff like that. But basically, there's a lot more bullying that happens between Ernie. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that they change, which is huge, is that in the short story, you get the characters of Ernie and his friend, who I can't remember, and Peter Watson, who is the boy that gets mm-hmm. bullied in the short film at one point he says i'm peter watson and this yeah. happened to me 27 years ago right which is i mean i guess i guess maybe part of the constraint too is that this these are children that this is happening to and there are no children that he had to work with and so maybe that's why he made some of these very strange decisions but like So then you're watching it and you realize that this is Peter Watson and then that boy is also Peter Watson. But like the older version. But he also plays one of the other boys at one point. But yes, except for that moment that he plays one of the other boys. And they do a costume change and they put him in all black and they give him black glasses. Yeah. Like like it's a Western. And also the fact that um, he... There's an there's an implication with him saying, I'm Peter Watson and this happened to me 27 years ago, that he's alive. Yes, right. And the story doesn't make it, doesn't imply that he dies. It seems very possible that he could have lived. Um, but he is shot. And mm-hmm. he is, it ends with him like in his mother's backyard bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's like, it does make this otherwise very dark short story um a lot more hopeful in a way right. that i think is a very interesting choice for wes anderson yeah um but in terms of like again so much of it was cut out part of me part of me when you know how earlier you were saying like that one line that richard Ioday has makes everything worth it you'd almost have to be a rat yourself <laughs> In this one, when you get to the end where Roald Dahl starts saying that little monologue, I copied it. We won't read the whole thing. But he says, like, some people 
when they have taken too much and have been driven beyond the point of endurance, simply crumple and give up. There are others, though, they are not many, who will for some reason always be unconquerable. You meet them in war and also in time of peace. That monologue, which goes on and is like saying Peter Watson is one of those people, I was like, this is the reason that this entire short film exists. Yes. Like, the whole reason that he made this short film based on the short story is because of this paragraph of text. Mm-hmm. And um, Roald Dahl, like, speaking that out loud and um, getting to hear Ray Fine say that with, like, such conviction. Yeah. Because um, he says the whole thing, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that makes this whole otherwise very strange, like, it almost feels like an audiobook. Yes. More so than any of the others. Mm-hmm. Because if you aren't paying attention and you sort of look up, you're getting yeah. no clues as to what's happened. Right. <laughs> so so if I understand uh, something you said, uh, you said that, when Rupert Friend says, my name is Peter Watson, this happened to me, that's not in the short story. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Right. Okay. So I think that that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was necessary to do that to justify adapting it in this way so that it is narrated and partially enacted by Rupert Friend. Mm-hmm. And also as a kind of like... This thing is really horribly brutal. And just at the moment when he's going to be like tied to the railroad tracks, I think that's the moment when he says that I'm Peter Watson. This happened to me. That's true. That's a, I didn't even think about the placement of that. Oh, okay. Thank God the kid survives this. So there's sort of a release valve that it sounds like the story didn't have. Mm-hmm. which I can totally understand why Wes Anderson would want it to have that so that so that this thing is watchable mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not so horrific that it is unwatchable. Um, now, I want to ask you, did you like reading these short stories? So I want to say I didn't fully read them. Okay. And by that, I mean, I had them up as the dialogue was playing mm-hmm. and was watching and sort of checking in mm-hmm. to see where it changed. Yeah. So I couldn't tell you every single thing that changed. But like for this one, um, I didn't, I could have sat there and read all the parts that I missed and all the parts he cut out. But instead, I was actually, I had control F up and every so often I would control F a phrase and then see how much further I had pushed down. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I will say that one in particular, I would not have liked reading and I'll tell you why. Um, He very heavily uses the accent that he Mm. uses for the kids, which is insufferable to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, in general too, like I, as somebody who was like, the most helpless I have ever felt in my life was when I was being bullied as like a 10 year old that, I mean, I've talked, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast. That was like the year I was truly suicidal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm not, I'm not like, um, a person that's quote unquote triggered or something like that, mm-hmm. where I'm suddenly going to have a panic attack. It, it was so far away from me now that it feels, um, 
a little bit like a story. Um, but it is something that like, it's very tedious to me. Right. So, so I, I began by saying that the shorts taken together feel like they were made primarily for the purpose of giving the world a, a loving tribute to Roald Dahl. Yeah. And I want to start to wrap up by saying a few words about why I am not eager to read the works of Roald Dahl. Yes. Which I think I haven't read any at all, if I remember correctly. Did you not read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or anything like that in elementary school? I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Glass Elevator. I don't believe that I ever have. And if I read anything of his, it was probably for school and I've forgotten what it was or or that it was an example of him. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've i seen a lot of uh, adaptations of his work from, from Willy Wonka to this. Mm-hmm. And I feel a little funny saying this because Fantastic Mr. Fox is one of my favorite movies. Yes. Like, even outside of Wes Anderson, it's, like, one of my favorite movies. Exactly right. Isn't there... And I feel like this is most present in Willy Wonka. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't there some... Isn't there something really mean about Roald Dahl's stories? They all seem to have this worldview that some people, and in fact, probably most people, are inherently bad. Yeah, I think that. I but think that some that's people a fair are assessment. special. Yeah, and I get this from the monologue that you called out, the paragraph that you pointed out is yeah. like the cornerstone of the Swan. Some people have this indomitable spirit, and you find them in times of war, and sometimes in times of peace, and and aren't they so GD special? Mm-hmm. Compared to the rabble, the masses, these people with funny voices, funny accents, funny ways of speaking, who are so dumb and so cruel, and I wish they would all just die, don't you? Yeah, and, I think and, there's and a Willy real... And Willie is that way. It's like, this kid watches too much TV. Crucify him. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I feel like... I mean, because the other thing, too, is, like, as we know, Roald Dahl was problematic in his own right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, beyond the fact that he um, was of a time, so to speak. Bringing it back to, oh, my God, what a fortunate coincidence that of all the things you could have pulled out of the grab bag, you pulled out the one about Paula Tompkins. Exactly. Yes. Who at one time hosted a podcast called the Dead Authors Podcast. <laughs> yeah. And probably the funniest thing that ever happened on that show was Ben Schwartz played Roald Dahl and Paula Tompkins in character as the host H.G. Wells asked him about his anti-Semitism, which Ben Schwartz clearly didn't know anything about. Yeah. Ben Schwartz, by the way, another person that I feel is very kind. Oh my God, yeah. Part of the reason why. You've written all about how, yeah, he's the embodiment of positivity and kindness. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, exactly. I think that Roald, but Roald Dahl was also in war. Uh, yeah, well, he was he was a spy, right? Yeah. 
And I feel like he and, he... and he wrote, by the way, one of my favorite James Bond movies, which is an enormously problematic fave. It is uh-huh. so racist. It I should feel very bad about <laughs> saying that I enjoy it. But at, at the same time, it has that awful stuff. It also has the villain's lair that's inside of a volcano. Yeah. And it has a person entering and saying bad news from outer space. <laughs> which is my favorite line in any James Bond movie. Um, yeah, I mean, he was obviously very talented and did a lot of things, but I do think that I feel, and I'm, I'm not justifying the cruelness here. Um, this is me being empathy, Liz. I mean, when am I not empathy, Liz? But... I feel like he must have, in being in war, seen most people under pressure mm-hmm. will be bad. Mm-hmm. And the people that you want to find are the people who, under pressure, are good. And those are the people, that's who you should try to be. But, like, don't kid yourself. Most people in a war are gonna record a podcast. Yeah. No, yeah, I definitely think that that's where that monologue is coming from. And where my uh, point about Roald Dahl is coming from is related to that, but it's more so from a place of trying to watch. Uh, like Matilda, for example, mm, mm-hmm. and being like, "This isn't fun." Yeah, Matilda is especially fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, and I think also, I mean, the thing I read Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and enjoyed it at the time. I mean, I was in the third third grade. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Gilbert, my third grade teacher, had a letter from Roald Dahl on her wall framed. Mm-hmm. Um, about the BFG and it had a drawing or something from the BFG which I still have not read mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think that there I will say like I don't love his writing like when I read the Fantastic Mr. Fox I was sort of expecting something mm-hmm. fun and instead it was like sort of boring and mm-hmm. every I was like man Wes Anderson really pulled something out of this that was only barely there <laughs> yeah yeah that's what's sort of fascinating to me but in a way where i would be quicker to write it off than to really explore it yeah is um is is i i don't i don't understand i don't understand where this is coming from part of me part of me thinks that um i mean i will actually take this back to wes anderson which is that when you have limited access to media and you have access to Roald Dahl, for example, mm-hmm. and compared to everything else, it's interesting and fun or shows you part of the world in a way you hadn't thought of before. And then you read it over again and over again and over again. It sort of ends up in your head in a way where you make it a lot bigger than it actually is. And, you know, I have been shown a lot of evidence that The Life Aquatic by Steve Zissou is not Wes Anderson's best movie. Mm -hmm. 
And yet every time I watch one of his movies, I don't get the same feeling I get from watching The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Mm -hmm. which is that every part of it is perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think, yeah, I think that he must, I really do think that Wes Anderson must have encountered those stories early. Yeah, and then it, it just goes, internalize them. Right. The ex- Yes, the explanation very likely for this thing that seems odd to me and that I can't rationalize is it goes back to childhood. And that it's not rational. And, it, and it's not rational. Yeah. I can, yeah, I could easily believe that. But yeah, I, I, I think that these shorts, if we're looking at these, I don't think we should rank these first off. Fair enough. Um, Because I think that as much as they are the same, they are so vastly different from anything else he's done, at -hmm. least in terms of him not looking. If you're looking at anything else in the world, they're exactly the same as everything else he's done. Uh (laughs) But um, I do think, I think the thing that was most interesting to me about these is, as I said at the beginning, how specific they felt. Um. In a completely different way than anything else he's done. Right. Um, I think that obviously he has his deal and he has the things he loves, but um, I feel like he really sort of like pushed the boundary of what counts as a film here. (laughs) Well, and that is sort of a transition into another way of talking about it that I'm not going to get into i'm just going to tease Uh that i think we are going to get into this in january yeah when the oscar nominees are announced (gasps) that's right you know major filmmakers like wes anderson don't as far as i'm aware make short films that a bunch of people watch Mm -hmm. but he did and Does that mean that Henry Sugar is going to be nominated in live action short film and it's going to be a shoe in to win in a category where it is normal for normal people like us to have never seen or heard of who the nominees are? I saw someone I saw someone online saying they would never even nominate it because the category is intended for up and coming filmmakers Mm -hmm. and it would look bad uh, for them to uh, give him that award. Um, I'm also thinking about whether these shorts coming out in the same year as Asteroid City hurts Asteroid City because these have been seen by people more recently yeah. And some people might like them better. And he might have set himself up for being ignored for his great feature film this year because mm-hmm. he uh, released these in addition. Um, but uh, that is not even a topic for next month because next month is December. Mm-hmm. And you will host. And then... Uh, and then I believe January 23rd okay. is when the nominees are announced. So mm-hmm. late January will be not too soon uh, for me to do my next Oscars episode. Nice. Yeah. Um, thanks for the uh, research that you brought to this discussion. And, yeah, I'm uh, glad it was, it was interesting. Yeah. No, it was very interesting to hear 
some things that I could not have gotten myself just from watching these. Mm-hmm. Great job as always. You too, Will. Excited. Because we have nothing else from Wes Anderson besides awards coming up for him, right? The past couple of times we've had something on the docket. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's next is uh, is a mystery except for, you know, rumblings that we've heard that I think we've already discussed. Um, but nothing's nothing's on any calendars as far as I know. Incredible. Well, I'll see you next time in the un- unknowable future for... The next for, installment of Wes Ann, part Wes of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. We'll probably get the next edition of Handmaid's Takes before we get the next edition of Wes Ann. Uh, yeah, because now all the fucking strikes are over. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Love you, Will. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at Youngest of One, and his website is WilliamHoffacker.com. You can find Liz at Exclamate on Instagram at exclamate underscore on Twitter or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram.